All right, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. We are continuing our time uh, Sunday by Sunday, making our way through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And uh, in this letter, we are seeing Paul exhort and encourage the church towards uh, unity together, but not just unity for unity's sake, but unity that is rooted in joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and in gladness in him. And so this is a unity that is bound not in anything, uh, in any specific resolve of the church, but in hearts that are affectionate for and set upon the risen Lord, our King Jesus Christ. And so Philippians 2 verses 19 to 30 is where we find ourselves this morning. On July 7th, 1939, so 81 years ago, this past week, July 7th, 1939, uh, the last boat, the last ship that would leave New York City for Germany before World War II began departed from New York. You see, on September 1st of 1939, World War II officially began. So tensions were rising. People knew what seemed to be inevitable was coming, and on that last boat was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you are familiar with Bonhoeffer, I'm sure. Bonhoeffer uh, is a, was a brilliant theologian and was a servant of the church. He was German, as the name I'm sure betrays, and he had come to New York City because uh, things in Germany were getting more and more uh, dire, and he was part of a small uh, organization or, or, or network of churches that were known simply as the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was this small group of Protestant churches that refused to uh, yield themselves, refused to bow the knee to Hitler and the Nazi forces. So as the Third Reich began to intensify things and as the Confessing Church began to feel the walls encroaching around her, Hit, uh, Bonhoeffer began to receive invitations from friends of his and associates from all over the globe, uh, essentially trying to get him to leave Germany before it became too late. So one such invitation came from some friends and acquaintances in New York City, and he took, himself, took them up on this invitation uh, to come to New York. So Bonhoeffer arrived in New York in, 1939, in, in June of 1939, uh, which was just a few weeks prior to this time that he would leave uh, New York to head back to Germany. So what happened in that time in which he was here, that brief time? Well, he didn't get homesick. He had been to New York before and and spent, I think, three years in the U.S. uh, in the mid-1930s. But what happened was immediately upon arriving in New York, he began to feel this sense of uneasiness and this sense of regret that he should not have left Germany. He wrote in a letter to his friend Reinhold Niebuhr that he was becoming more and more convinced and that the confessing church became, was becoming more and more knowledgeable of the fact that one of two things was going to happen and, and they were going to have a role in it. One of which was that they would work for and serve for the uh, victory of their beloved homeland, the victory of their beloved country, but that would bring about the destruction of civilization as they knew it if the Nazis triumphed. The other outcome was that civilization would prove to be preserved that the forces of good would be victorious, but that would mean the destruction of their German home. Bonhoeffer wrote to Niebuhr 
as far as this decision goes, I know which option I shall choose, but I cannot make that decision from the safe haven of another country. So on July 7, 1939, Bonhoeffer boarded that last ship from New York to go home to Germany. Have you ever wanted or, or, or perhaps found yourself desiring a cause or, or, or a, a mission that you can give yourself to that is perhaps even greater than yourself? We look at stories like that of Bonhoeffer and we read them and, and we think that is a fascinating story or somebody should make a movie about that. Or we see it all, all, all about us today. We see movements that are built on things that are greater than any one person. And sometimes we look at things outside of us and say, Oh, that I could find that cause to give myself to. Or maybe you would say on the other side of it, maybe you would say, I feel like I'm in that position of I need someone to come to me. My needs are far too great for me to handle them alone. Is there hope? Is there refuge? Is there relief that can be found in others coming to my aid, even at great risk to themselves? even at great consequence to themselves. Well, we see that in Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. And particularly, we see we meet two guys, long before Bonhoeffer, we, we meet two guys named Timothy and Epaphroditus who show us, illustrate for us, the manner of servanthood and the manner of selfless sacrifice for the sake of others in the church that ought to mark us as the church. Now, as I prepare to read these verses, and as we consider the examples that we'll see in Timothy and Epaphroditus, and we just heard of with Bonhoeffer, as I, as I prepare to read this, I, I want to situate us where we are in the text. So, this guy Epaphroditus, who we're going to meet here, he had been an emissary or an envoy from the church at Philippi going to Paul, who was in prison in Rome, and bringing a report of the state of the church to Paul. And this report included likely some kind of uh, request for Timothy, who was Paul's associate, uh, to come back to Philippi and help the church work through some conflict they were dealing with, likely related to divisions or schism within the body. So Epaphroditus has come. He's brought a letter to Paul saying, hey, we need help. And can you send Timothy? And in the midst of that journey, Epaphroditus uh, uh, suffered greatly uh, in even getting to Paul. And so you'll see that mentioned here. But listen to Paul as he says, as he gives his response and and tells them why Timothy can't come back quite yet. But he's going to send Epaphroditus. So listen to this in chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, 
And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What we're going to see this morning in this brief passage is that God sets before us the responsibility. His word sets before us the responsibility to both emulate as well as to honor those who sacrifice of themselves for the good of the church. Let us emulate and seek to honor those who sacrifice of themselves in effort to build up the church. We're going to see this in two ways. We're going to see how we understand our responsibility to one another in the church, and then we're going to see how we can embrace this responsibility to one another in the church. So understanding and then embracing our responsibility to one another in the church. So if you look at it, Paul says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered of news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And, and so Paul says, look, I've gotten your letter. I want to send Timothy to you, but I just can't yet. But when he comes, I hope to hear good news about how you are doing. Um, this, this whole passage is quite interesting because it serves as, as, as like a travelogue or what we would see if you're familiar with uh, Paul's other letters that he's written to other churches throughout the New Testament. It serves as uh, uh, oftentimes at the end of the letters, he includes uh, departing remarks saying, hey, how's this person doing? And this person's doing well. He sends his love to you and I'm going to send this person to you. And, and so these are often what are found to be concluding remarks. And yet Paul includes this travelogue or these concluding remarks right in the middle of his letter to the church at Philippi. And so where it might seem out of place, you have to ask yourself, okay, why would he do this? Well, I think the reason that we see that he does this is because Paul is not just getting lazy in his writing, but what he's doing is he's holding Timothy and Epaphroditus up before the church as examples for them to behold and for them to emulate as models of selfless sacrificial service to one another in the church body. And so I think that's what he's shooting for here. Now, as, as we read this, Paul says, I'm going to send him to you soon, but you need to know I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. We don't know who the they are is. Well, that's a hard sentence for me to say. We don't know who the they that he's referencing are. We don't know who they are, but we know that there are some who seem to profess the name of Christ that we saw him reference back in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, who are even preaching the gospel, but doing so from motives that are less than pure. And so Paul's holding Timothy up, and he's saying his interests are the interests of Christ. He's not in this to make a buck. He's not in this to advance his career. He's not in this for his own acclaim. His interests are the interests of Christ. Therefore, his interests are building up servants of Christ and the church of Christ. Therefore, in asking for Timothy to come, you have asked for the right one. His heart is pure. His heart is true. But Paul says, I hope, therefore, in verse 23, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul says, I can't send him yet. Paul doesn't say specifically, exhaustively, why he can't send Timothy yet. 
Was it that Paul, while he was imprisoned himself, awaiting a verdict or awaiting to be released, awaiting some kind of ruling on what his future held, that he needed Timothy with him? Maybe, but we don't know. Was he dealing with loneliness? Was he dealing with questions of of, of even doubting what God was at work in his own life about? I I don't know specifically about that, but perhaps there was some kind of loneliness there that he was dealing with. Some kind of sense of, I've had so many people depart from me, I can't give up Timothy. As you see in uh, verse 22, where he says, you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul is Timothy's spiritual father. Timothy is Paul's spiritual son, and they have served together in the gospel. Paul says, I can't send him yet. There's something for us to learn from the Apostle Paul here. Something for us to learn from this whole passage. And that is that we need one another. Now, sometimes we can do everything in our power to seem to indicate that we don't need one another in the church. We like to think, I can handle my own problems. I'm not going to bring other people in on these. And, and, you know, they've got their own problems. And I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to deal with it all myself. Sometimes life feels like we're swimming against a current and maybe in your life, if, if you can use that illustration, you've got different currents or different forces that might be opposing you as you try to swim upstream. And so whether you've got own issues that you're dealing with or family issues or issues at work or issues with finances or issues with everything going on in the world, you've kind of got all these different things, maybe five or six things that particularly can weigh on you. And if you're like me, I I can do a decent job of swimming with these if I feel like I've got one or maybe two of them going against me, but not when all of them are going against me. You ever feel like life is just against you? Like you can't catch a break? Paul would hold up our brothers and sisters in the church, our fellow Christians, as ones to join with us in that swimming, to be that life jacket that we can cling to so as to not drown. And there have been times I look back on myself and where I've pushed others away and said, no, I don't want it. I got this myself. Is it because we fear bringing other people in on our problems? We don't want to acknowledge, perhaps, to the fellow church member or to the one who's asking how we're doing. We don't want to acknowledge that, hey, right now I'm having doubts about the faith. I'm not sure I believe this thing. Brothers and sisters, let's resolve that we're going to try to be honest with one another. We can be honest with one another, even if we are questioning or doubting the most foundational tenets of the Christian faith. In the church, we can be honest with one another, and we can be honest as we open up God's word together to seek him together in this. Or maybe you hole up and you push back because you have doubts about, or or you're having uh, hardships in your own marriage. You're having hardships in your marriage where it feels like you're walking on eggshells. It feels like every uh, disagreement turns into a blow up. It feels like finances are tough or or there's issues that you and your spouse don't agree on. And and whatever it may be, you don't want to invite another into it to help you to process or help you to walk through because you feel as if that would be inviting a magnifying glass like focus upon you that you're uncomfortable with. Or maybe you're even having questions of identity, questions about your own sexuality, questions that you feel like are foundational to who you are, but strangely, the more and more foundational they feel to you, the more and more 
distanced you want to be from others that you might seek out in the church to talk through these things with. Maybe you feel like whatever it might be in your heart, maybe it's something I've mentioned, maybe it's other things that we might deal with. Sometimes we can feel like if I bring another person in on what I'm walking through, it's like I've got a lit firework that is my life, and I'm going to hand it to them, and they're going to drop it, or they've got a can of gasoline with them. They're going to pour on it, and it's just going to cause an explosion, and it's just going to make everything so much worse, and I'll be the one that gets burned. And sometimes those feelings are due to past times we did get burned, whether it was the insensitivity of that person you shared that hurt with, or you felt like instead of coming to somebody for mercy and care and gentle treatment, they were that old football trainer who snaps the thing back in place and slaps you on the back and says, get back out there. As opposed to being a surgeon who provides that delicate surgery upon your heart and upon your soul. Whatever it may be, one thing that we see in this passage and one thing that we have to understand as a church is the following truth. The ways in which God grows us in our faith are not just for ourselves. We have brothers and sisters around us who perhaps we've been growing what we feel leaps and bounds and we're on that spiritual high but the brother or sister near to us feels that spiritual low. And maybe it's in that time that they need you to walk alongside them so they can be carried along by you. The Apostle Paul can acknowledge his own need for Timothy. And if we can consider elsewhere in his letters where he talked about things like despairing even of life itself, let us not be so proud to refuse to acknowledge things in our own life where we need one another in the body. Now, you might say, okay, alarm bells go off. If I understand your premise, Stephen, if I understand what you're saying, how do I do that? How do we do that? How do we let down that guard and let others in? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. First, let's just get to acknowledging the fact that that might be what we need with one another in the body. So Paul says, you know Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel? I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. But Paul's not going to leave the church at Philippi high and dry. He's going to send them relief. He's going to send them further help. He's going to send them aid. And look at that as we transition from understanding our responsibility to one another in the body. Now to seeing how we can embrace our responsibility to one another. He says to the church, he says, yeah, you're right on Timothy. He's solid. But let me tell you about one other one who's solid as well. So he says in verse 25, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. You know, Epaphroditus is a guy who we're going to see a little more about him in just a moment, but you don't hear a lot about him in Scripture. He's only just mentioned here in, in chapter 4, verse 18. I believe that's it. And we don't know much about him. He's not listed as a pastor. He's not listed as a worship leader. He's not listed as an elder. He's not listed as a deacon. He's not listed as a budget guru. He's not listed as a phenomenal small group teacher. He's not listed as a a phenomenal uh, deep prayer warrior or anything of the sort. 
But what he is listed at in verse 25 are the following. A brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. A friend of mine that was preaching uh, on this passage uh, a number of years ago said, you know, that's, that would be something really good to have put on the tombstone of a Christian. Wouldn't you like to be known as that? Brother or sister, fellow worker, fellow soldier in the faith, messenger and minister of the needs of others in the body. You know, look at these ways that he's described as a brother. This is the most foundational identity that we have as Christians with one another. We have been made brothers and sisters by the grace of God and by his work within us and drawing us into his family. So brothers and sisters in the body and then God our Father. You know, it's possible that one thing about, as we understand this responsibility that we have to one another, is that sometimes we fail to embrace that because we fail to see the responsibility we have to one another in the context of our familial relationship together spiritually. But make no mistake, understand this. And if you're, if you're learning more about Christianity and, and how people are all brought together in this faith, understand this. We are not just brought together by shared interests. We are brought together because we've been given a shared heart, a shared blood that has made us family together. And that shared heart is, comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, who he is the one who is our brother in the faith as well, as Scripture describes him, who came and he's not a brother in the sense that we are equal with him, but he's a brother in the sense that he came and died for his brothers and sisters in the faith. And he came and is, is creating a new family in him to the glory of the Father. And he's creating a new family so that as we, as ones who were uh, part of the, the family of life on this earth, we can be brought together in the family of faith that is looking towards our future home and we can cling to one another and find relief and find rescue and find reward and find gladness in our Lord Jesus and oftentimes in his love that is poured out uh, upon us through one another in the body. And so he has adopted us into a family, not just for cute language, but for survival as Christians. So that's brother. And then you see fellow worker, fellow soldier. And your messenger and minister to my need. Paul says that Epaphroditus was just equal with me in the work and in the hard labor. He uses a soldier imagery of serving the Lord Jesus amidst great trial and great hardship. And he says, and he's also your messenger, your minister to my need, who you at the church at Philippi sent to me in my need. Now look at this profile of Epaphroditus here. So these are who, he's are, who he is. And then verse 26, it says, For he has been longing for you all, been longing for this church family that he knows, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. I want to pause right there. So you, can, you, you might be able to put yourself in Epaphroditus' shoes there where you would say, yeah, I, I, maybe other people have gotten word in the past that something was wrong with me, but I wanted to, to, to help them know, okay, it's not as bad as you think. I'm okay. Don't worry. Don't be so distressed. All of that. But listen to this. Epaphroditus was distressed because the church at Philippi heard he was ill. And then Paul says, yes, indeed, he was ill in verse 27. He was near to death. <laughs> so Epaphroditus, his love for the church, near death, but worried about the church and what they're thinking about him. Worried they're going to get so worked up in their worry and concern for him. 
But then Paul says in the middle of verse 27, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Paul wants this this man, Epaphroditus, to be reunited with his church family who he loves. He's recuperated. He, He got sick as he journeyed here, and I'm ready to send him back to you. And he sent him back with this letter that we now have is or as the book of Philippians in our Bibles. And so we see in Epaphroditus, we see a model of something that if Paul is doing what I think he's doing and he's holding him up as an example for us in the faith of selfless sacrifice for one another in the body, this is an interesting example. Literally risking his life. Forget risking his comfort. Forget you know, bending creature comforts or the, or the things of life that might be a little more difficult for him, but he's literally risking his life. We might look at this and say, that's reckless. He can find another minister, but Epaphroditus can't find another life. Well, Epaphroditus' life is tied up with serving his brothers and sisters in the faith. And that's what we need. That's what we need to embrace with one another. I am not a Lord of the Rings guy. I think I've seen them, but more out of like torment than enjoyment in watching them. But I saw a discussion this week uh, of online of where people were discussing who the greatest characters are in Lord of the Rings, apart from Frodo. So Frodo, if you're unfamiliar with it, and those of you who are really familiar with it, you're going to say, Stephen, you're butchering this, but it's the best I got. Frodo was the main character who was tasked with getting this ring to Mordor, wherever that is. Um, and he had all these people that were with him, at some coming and going, some with him throughout. And a lot of them had apparently had special gifts or powers with fancy swords, or maybe they could harness and use dragons to their advantage or have other superpowers. I know Gandalf had a stick that he could do something with. Um, but anyway, a, a lot of people were serving, like, who is the best character apart from Frodo? And the one everyone kept coming back to was this guy, Sam. Sam didn't have superpowers. Sam's power was that he never left Frodo's side. Sam's great gift was his loyalty to his brother and his unwillingness to see him try to journey to Mordor alone. That's what we hold up here. You don't have to be the greatest Bible teacher. You don't have to be the greatest musician. You don't have to be the greatest uh, 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 preacher. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to be all sorts of things that you might think that you have to measure up to in order to be faithful to the task that God might call you to do. The greatest thing you have to have is just availability and willingness. You see, and you actually see this uh, back in verses 19 to 24, and you see a, a model for how we, ought to pers- how we ought to understand our lives and our work that God calls us to. And in verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Is that like just super spiritual language with Paul? Like, like, like when he was, well, let's say when he was out of prison, but uh, back in, in normal life, would he like tell his friends if he was going to run to the store, I hope in the Lord to go to the store today at 1 o'clock. I don't think that's it. 
I think what Paul realizes is that his life and the lives of, of, of those who had professed to follow and professed to believe in the name of Christ are so wrapped up in Christ and what he commands, what he calls us to, that we, using this language of soldiers, we are soldiers under the commission of Christ our King, that our lives are to be held open-handedly in a manner where he dictates the direction, he dictates the path, he dictates the orders that we receive, and our responsibility is simply faithfulness to his direction. So when Paul says, I hope in the Lord, I trust in the Lord, he's recognizing and he's saying, it all rests in God's hands. And so may we be a people who pursue that availability, that we are open. You say, okay, so how do I embrace others? How do I bring others or, or come alongside of others in the faith? Well, we start small. We start small. Maybe we don't risk our life making a journey from Philippi to Rome, but maybe we change our plans in order to sit down at a socially distanced level with the brother or sister that we know is having a hard time and have them over to sit outside on Tuesday night. Or we just get in the habit of trying to make a phone call weekly to check in on them and pray with them. Or offer to start doing a Bible study together, whether outside under the trees or over some kind of technology like Zoom or Skype or over the phone or whatever the case is. But we pursue availability for the sake of one another. You know, this is something that is at the heart of church membership. In August, we're going to, uh, Lord willing, have a church membership class. And we're going to be seeking to add people to our church membership. And we're not going to be seeking to add people to church membership thinking that God is more pleased with us or that heaven delights in, uh, uh, or heaven is more, more proud of us the more people we add to our church membership role. That's not it. But church membership is the, the responsibility or it's the official formalizing the commitment of the church body to walk alongside of one another in the faith. To refuse to leave someone behind, but to make the commitment that we are responsible for one another. So you're going to be hearing more about that in the weeks ahead. I'd love to talk with you more about that if you're interested in learning more about that. But that's what we do. And, and, and here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. Look at what Paul says. Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So so Paul is concerned with their joy. He wants them to rejoice at seeing Epaphroditus. And then he wants them to do in verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul lifts him up and says, I want you to honor him. I want you to rejoice in his coming. And here's what we see. The way in which God brings the church family together, the way in which he brings one Christian to walk alongside uh, a, a great trial or a great hardship with another Christian, the way that he does that is a manner by which we are not only helping them through that trial, but we are helping one another to delight in and to to see and to savor and to trust the Lord Jesus and his word a little more clearly. This week I was out at the Situate Lighthouse out on the jetty. And if you've ever walked out on the jetty, uh, you know the rocks are uneven and, and you know it, it can be a bit treacherous for some or, or, or a bit of an obstacle for some. Uh, and so I was out sitting about three-fourths of the way down on the jetty. And I looked over and I saw a couple of people walking towards me that they both looked like they were in pretty good health and it shouldn't be an issue. But then I noticed, that's all right, 
um, I noticed that um, uh, that one of the people was helping the other one, like had him by the hand and had him by the arm and was helping him to walk along the jetty in order to get out to the end of it. And what I noticed was that this one had some pretty serious physical limitations that otherwise they weren't going to be able to get there apart from the help of the other individual who was guiding him along. And I thought to myself as I saw it, I thought that is a brilliant example or a brilliant illustration of our responsibilities with one another in the faith, our responsibilities with one another in church membership. You see, the journey we might have the appearance of looking like we are healthy, but the reality is in the journey towards that end, we need one another to walk with us. And here's the thing. We don't just walk with one another in order that we can cross a, a finish line, although that is true. But we walk with one another because if you've ever reached the end of the jetty and turned and looked and just surrounded by ocean and turn back and look and see the harbor, see the lighthouse from a distance, it is beautiful. What we have a responsibility to do, what he holds Timothy and Epaphroditus up for us to see is that in helping one another to reach that end, we are helping one another to see the Lord Jesus in his goodness more clearly when perhaps our circumstances had us so enmeshed in fog that we weren't able to see him. We are able to trust the Lord Jesus more confidently, knowing that he has given us one another to walk alongside of each other and to care for one another. Sometimes in life and in the church, we can twiddle our thumbs and wonder, what does God want me to do? When in fact, the thing he might want you to do is answer the deepest prayers of the person that's 20 feet away from you in the pew or lawn chair. And sometimes we can find ourselves praying and saying, God, will you bring help? Will you reach down? Will you touch my life? Would you bring some kind of relief in this situation I am walking through? And maybe that relief is the person sitting 20 feet away from you. You have to be willing to open yourself up for it. You know, we can hope in this and we can look to guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus and we can even hold a guy up like Bonhoeffer as an example of radical faith for the sake of others because we have the example of Christ who where Epaphroditus nearly died in his deliverance of this gift to Paul. Christ did die. And Christ died in order to give us life. See, Jesus Christ died for our sins. The weight of the, the, the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God rested upon us. And yet Christ came and he served us fully and completely that we might be made brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, adopted into a new family, the very family of God, where we are brought to the dinner table to feast on Christ together and to journey together towards that final feast, to hold one another's arms as we try to step over the rocks where they're difficult and where perhaps our limitations might make it hard for us to step over them apart from the help of others. We're going to walk together in the faith, seeking to emulate Christ who gave his life for his church and emulate those who model this sacrifice and honor them as well.
Paul said, honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. When we seek to emulate this and when we resolve to honor and to thank God for those who come alongside of us, we're not just honoring them, but we're giving praise and honor to our Lord Jesus who has given that brother or sister to us. We are gifts of God for one another. May we seek to meet one another with the goodness of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we do give you praise. And we thank you for the gift that we have in one another as a church. And we pray that you would help us to grow in this gift of one another all the more. We pray that as we grow week by week by week, conversation by conversation, that you would make us a church that six months from now, two years from now, five years from now, we would just have continued market growth in our reaching out to one another in our seeking to encourage and to comfort one another, in our seeking just to step back and listen to the concerns and the cries of the one who has sat down near us on a Sunday morning. May we not be people who come thinking that we are seeking to get a massage at the spa, but may we come seeking to meet one another in the mercy and goodness of Christ. And may we be a people who taste and see that that mercy and goodness is good. That mercy and goodness is real. And then we strive to minister it to others on this journey that you have brought us along as your people, as a family of faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.